The last class of my old professor's life took place once a week in his house by a window in the study where he could watch a small hibiscus plant shed its pink leaves. The class met on Tuesdays. It began after breakfast. The subject was the meaning of life. It was taught from experience. No books were required, yet many topics were covered, including love, work, community, family, aging, forgiveness, and finally, death. The last lecture was brief, only a few words. A funeral was held in lieu of graduation. The last class of my old professor's life had only one student. I was the student. I'm teaching me all that so scared, you know? And that there are ways of doing it that are courageous and dignified and graceful and giving. That's the important thing. Because when you're sick, what you want to do is take. But if you can also give, then you've really got a different constellation. That was the voice of Maury Schwartz. I am Mitch Album, host of this podcast, Tuesday People, which examines life through the prism of Tuesdays with Maury, the book I wrote about my old college professor, Maury Schwartz, back in the mid-90s while he was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease and the lessons that he learned through that and that he imparted onto me, and we share a lot of those lessons here today. Today's episode is going to be very unique. Most Americans are talking about, in some shape or form, the coronavirus, how they would handle it, how dangerous it is, how much do they have to be worried about it. So we thought it would be interesting to bring on someone who can talk about that very firsthand. Carl Goldman lives in Santa Clarita, California. He runs a radio station there. However, back in January, he was on a Princess Cruise Line. You may recall reading about it. Thought he was just going to take a lovely cruise with his wife. And just before it ended... They discovered that a passenger who had been on that cruise and had later gotten off had the coronavirus, and so all of the passengers were quarantined. That led to a series of quarantines, both overseas and now here in the United States, where Carl Goldman continues to be quarantined in Omaha, Nebraska, and he joins us from that quarantine to talk to us on the Tuesday People podcast. Carl, thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you, Mitch. I'd love to be in your studio, but I'd be more contagious, I think, if I uh, did that. <laughs> well, it's an interesting word, contagious. Uh, you are, I understand, 67 years old, right? Correct. Celebrated you... my 67th birthday in quarantine. In quarantine. Have you ever been contagious before with anything? Have you ever gone through anything like this in your life that you can relate to? Absolutely not, Mitch. This is unique and who could have predicted? We left Santa Clarita, California on a, as you said, a fun cruise that was a gift to my wife for Christmas and, and for her birthday on January 17th. We uh, had 15 wonderful days of a 16-day cruise. And then a passenger who had gotten off in Hong Kong ended up coming down with the coronavirus testing positive four days later. So we had a one-day quarantine on the ship, telling uh, we would be delayed. Japanese officials came on board and then announced the next morning that we were now quarantined for 14 days in our cabin. So I got to spend at least Valentine's Day quarantined <laughs> with my wife. My birthday, though, I was isolated. That's a different experience. Well, okay, let's talk about that, that first stage of this. So all of a sudden, you're on this cruise— you're a day away, essentially, from being finished with it. They come on, they say, a passenger who had been on earlier was infected, so all of you are going to have to now be quarantined for 14 days in this ship. What was the initial reaction? We all know coronavirus now, even in just a month's time or month and a half's time that's passed, it's taken on a whole new thing. People are familiar with it. But back then, when you're hearing this, what was your and some of the other passengers' initial reaction to being told we're going to kind of hold you prisoner for a while and, and observe you. And you have to stay in your cabins. Yeah, at first it was uh, not that big a deal. When we first left you know, California for Japan, coronavirus was not in the news. The Chinese, unfortunately, had been suppressing 
information about it. So it wasn't until I landed in Tokyo. When we landed in Tokyo, we were walking the streets. We had a few days in Tokyo before we boarded the Diamond Princess. And about a third of the population was wearing masks. And I said, wow, that's unusual. Did a quick look on the, on the Internet and realized that Japan being so close to China, they really felt vulnerable with the virus, even though the virus had not spread in Japan yet. So that's when we first started becoming aware of the virus and then following it as the news started snowballing with it. Hmm. But there were over 3,500 passengers and crew on our ship. So one person having the virus did not seem like a big, big deal. Not at that time. The bigger deal for us, we own the local radio station in Santa Clarita, California. We're hands-on owners, and we had set ourselves up for a 16-day cruise, which was the longest we'd been away from work ever. And now, all of a sudden, we're faced with another 14 days. So we spent a, bit, a couple of days scrambling, getting set up to work virtually and to make sure our staff was in place, take care and change appointments, pay bills, do all the things that you take for granted. We couldn't do that. We had to come up with a, a plan B with everything. And you're doing all of that from inside a small cruise ship cabin. Is that correct? Right. And we didn't feel that sorry for ourselves on the camp because we had we traveled with two of our close friends, Mark and Jerry Jorgensen. They had an adjoining cabin uh, that were both both of ours were mini suites. So we had a shared balcony. And the first day of the cruise, we unlocked the door between us so we could travel back and forth. There was a couple I met on one of our excursions. They were in their 80s from Atlanta, and their grandson had bought them a gift of the trip. And the grandson, along with another friend and the elderly couple, were sharing an inside cabin about half the size of ours with no windows. There was another family we met. They had two young kids in an inside cabin. Again, no windows. So anytime we started feeling sorry for ourselves, we just thought of them and what they had to be going through. So we eliminated any complaining on our side. Mm. So interesting, even with a situation that most average people would describe as horrific and, and, and terrible and, and inconvenience and scary and all the rest, you still found relative gratitude and relative things to be, uh, this is something we talk about on our program all the time, you still found reasons to be thankful because you looked around and you saw that there's still some people who have things worse. Absolutely. When we were making lemonade out of lemons, we were in a situation that was out of our control, so it didn't do any good to look back and, you know, do a woes me. Instead, it was just pulling up our sleeves and said, saying, hey, this is part of our life's adventure. Let's get through it. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? The first couple of days that you were in the cabin, you were all fine, right? You didn't, none of you showed any signs of actually getting the virus? Correct. We were fine. It started becoming about day two or three. It started having an impact on everybody, not just us on the ship. We could look at, we had, by then we had docked in Yokohama, which is where we were supposed to leave to begin with if it was a normal cruise, but they put us in a isolated docking area. So one side of the dock area had anywhere from 20 to 80 ambulances at different times. There were folks in hazmat suits. Military trucks were set up and they had jury-rigged a um, kind of tunnel leading from the ship over to a, the, the ground there so that an ambulance could pull up in between that covered area and take away a passenger. Um, on the other side, there was just a slew of media, TV cameras, trucks, satellite dishes. Two helicopters were flying around the, the ship at all at most times, at least during the daytime. And then there were also media on boats. So it was, as I said, really like a scene out of the Andromeda strain. 
Did you start to feel like a like like a, a monkey in a cage almost? Not quite. I think each day, I mean, we could stand outside and look outside, but each day the numbers kept increasing on the ship. Today, as I'm talking to you, the total now is at 706. Of there were 3,500 plus, so we're we're already at at a significant number. Over 20 percent have come down with the virus. There've been some tragic deaths from with passengers on the ship. So this thing became a floating petri dish that was a giant, giant mistake. Looking back, I I can't fault though Princess or the Japanese officials. It's easy to look back and say, boy, that was. That was a bad situation. I'm watching, of course, the news today and late yesterday with the princess ship that's now off the coast of San Francisco and seeing how they're going to handle it because I think a lot of lessons were learned from us on the Diamond Princess. So it's very easy to play Monday morning quarterback and say, oh, my gosh, we never should have done it. But it was such a fluid situation. China was not really forthright on any of the information they were releasing back then, and it's so, so I can't really fault them. I can't well, say what what, what what mistakes, uh, even if it's not somebody's you know deliberate one, but what things, if if we had the benefit of hindsight, should have been done differently. Well, as we're learning more and more about the virus, what seems to be clear is that, and this was true for me, I carried that virus for three, four, five days that I know of for sure, without knowing I had it. I hadn't been tested. The test that did, I did get a test after our friend Jerry Jorgensen came down with it, but that test took, it was taking two days to get the test off the ship to the lab in Tokyo and back. So by the time my test returned, I was already on a plane heading for Travis Air Force Base. But those test results didn't catch up with me till about five or six days after I was in Omaha. But those tests showed I was positive. So I went four or five days of being positive, yet not having any symptoms. And it seems like the virus can live on a surface for two, three, four hours. So I could have picked up the virus touching a railing as I was walking around the ship and vice versa. I could have left the virus on that same railing or a different railing. And that's how the virus is spread to everybody. So people were picking up the virus with no contact with each other. Hmm. That's what's so vicious about this and what is creating the potential epidemic that we might be experiencing here in the States is because of that. The first sign I had of the virus being um, hitting me was two hours after I got on the plane. We took off. I fell asleep, woke up with a fever of over 103. Wow. Now, how did you feel at that moment? Up till that point, you're probably saying to yourself, well, wow, this is scary. Wow, a lot of people have it. So far, I feel good. I imagine you were sort of taking inventory of yourself every hour. Uh, is that a cough or did I just uh, did it just something go down wrong when I, I, I swallowed something? You know, did I have to blow my nose or is that, is that just a normal thing? When you woke up with that fever, what ran through your mind? How much fear was there? What were your emotions? By then, I was pretty calm because what had happened in our situation is our friend Jerry Jorgensen had come down with the virus while on the ship. So she was one of the 40 Americans that were now in a hospital in Japan. They had driven her. By then, so many of the hospitals in Yokohama and Tokyo were were filled to capacity. They drove her four hours away to a a town called Fukushima, which is where the nuclear disaster took place. She was in a hospital there. By the time she got to the hospital, her spike in fever had already disappeared. She was convalescing with no symptoms, and it was like having a mild cold. So when my fever spiked, and and I was hearing that same reports from others on the ship, but we lived it with Jerry and with with Jerry Jorgensen, that's when I think it it hit all of us that here here one one of us got it, and this is bad news, and now she's going to be separated from from all of us. But that she now she a, she was a, the one who was uh, sh- you were sharing the room with, is that right? Or sharing the adjacent rooms? Sharing the adjacent room, correct? Right. So, so once she, she got it, did did you kind of figure, well, that, that's it for us? I mean, surely we've been in the confined 
confined space here. We've been breathing the same air. If she had it all this time, it's inevitable that we're going to get it. Yeah, but it's still a luck of the draw because her husband, Mark, and Jerry was the, Jerry Jorgensen was the healthiest of all of us. Mark was the least healthiest with two kidney transplants. So, so what was weird is Mark did not test positive. They they actually did the swabs on both of them because of Mark's condition, and it's ironic that Jerry was the one who got it and not Mark. Hmm. So we still knew it was a numbers game, and if Mark didn't get it, then we didn't think we would necessarily have it. But as a precaution, once we knew Jerry had it, we asked them to do the swab test on us, which is why we were tested with the swabs uh, while we were still on board the Diamond Princess. Now, when you're on the airplane and you're being flown uh, out of there, uh, maybe thinking, okay, I'm getting one step closer to freedom, uh, and then you find out that you've got the fever when you wake up, and you're obviously in your mind, you're saying, okay, I have got coronavirus now. What did you do? How did you see the reactions of other people around you? Were you scared to even mention that you had the fever uh, for fear of the way that other people would react? Walk us through that. No, we were all in this together. By then, there were, there were 150 of us on our plane. There was another plane with an equal amount heading to Texas. We were headed to California. There was already a quarantine unit set up on the plane, and I learned when I was put in there that there were already eight others in there. So I woke up. We didn't have it. It was a cargo plane, so we didn't have any stewardesses. There was obviously a pilot and co-pilot, and all the, the only personnel on there were three. It was one, three Air Force folks. One was a doctor and two medical assistants. They were in hazmat suits. So I went up to the doctor once I knew I had, once I really felt I had the fever, and went over there. He confirmed it, and he put me in the quarantine area. By then, I, would, I ended up just buckling my seatbelt, and I fell asleep and slept for eight hours until we landed in, uh, at Travis Air Force Base outside of Sacramento. What's weird about this virus is unlike a cold, I had no sore throat, I had no runny nose, no sniffling. All I had was a dry cough started that still lingers a little bit today, and that spike in fever. By the time we landed in Travis, I felt as if my fever had already broken and and was gone. Where was your wife during this? She was still in her seat, separated from me on the plane. So were you were uh, you tempted when you when you woke up with the fever? Were well, it was like your first instinct. uh, Obviously, you want to protect your loved ones to to slide away from her to keep your mouth turned to to don't touch me, don't touch my hand. I think I got it. Yeah, well, I got up very quickly and went over to the doctor, so there wasn't really time for that. But we had been in such close contact that I was not going to get her any more contagious than I would have anyway, so I wasn't that concerned about that. And more concerned about, you know, here's we all knew we were in for another 14 days of quarantine in addition to what we had already been experiencing. So here it was, this was all on February 17th. We'd already been away from our home for a month, and now we all faced another 14 days of quarantine. But when you got up from your seat and let the doctor know that you thought you had it and he confirmed it, and he basically ushered you back to the quarantine part of the plane, was that the last time that you could have contact with your wife? Yes, that's it. So what happened is we landed in at Travis Air Force Base. More medical folks came on board in hazmat suits. They decided to evacuate the whole plane except for three of us. So six that were in the quarantine area with me got off at Travis Air Force Base. I have a, a syndrome called uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome that impacts my nerves and muscles. So they, I think they felt I should get a higher level of care going off to Omaha. They, the three of us that were in quarantine uh, were separated, still stayed separated. Our spouses were given a choice of getting off at Travis or coming with us. My wife and the other spouses chose to go with us to Travis. Our other friend, Mark Jorgensen, along with, uh, he was the one with his wife, Jerry Jorgensen, was still in the hospital in Japan, Mark, who did not have the virus at that time, 
didn't have a choice. He could not come with us to Omaha. He had to get off at Travis. And in Mark's case, uh, he ended up, toward the end of the quarantine, they tested him to leave the protocols to get two negative tests in a row if you didn't have the virus. He, he tested positive with the virus the first time he was ready to leave. So he had the virus, but without the fever. He was one of the few I know of that never had the fever, never had any symptoms other than testing positive for the virus. Right. So you were you were eventually taken to Omaha, Nebraska, where you are speaking to us from now. How have you been treated and how have you felt? I've, I've read some of your blogs that you've been able to write and some of the interviews, and I don't blame you for, you'd probably go stir crazy if you didn't do some kind of blogging or talking to people because it's such isolation. Uh, but you mentioned at one point like a fishbowl and feeling like you're, you're sort of in that. And then you talked a moment ago about looking out the window of the ship or on the deck of the ship and seeing uh, people in hazmat suits and media and all the rest of it. By the time you, now you've been in quarantine and isolation for all this time in Omaha, what toll is that taking on your on your psyche? Well, first of all, I've become a giant fan of both Omaha and the, all the people in Nebraska. They are incredible. If I could be anywhere in the world, I am so thankful and grateful that this is where I am. When the um, anthrax, right after 9/11, when the anthrax scare hit, the CDC and the government set up three official centers to as biocontainment areas. There's one in New York, one in Atlanta, and then the main one is here in Omaha. They never used it for anthrax. Fifteen years later, they had three Ebola patients in the biocontainment unit when that virus and, and uh, had hit. And then five years later now, I'm number two to use that biocontainment area. When I got off the plane, they kept, still kept us separated from our spouses, and I was the only one going to the biocontainment area. The other five, including the two that were in quarantine with me, were sent in separate vehicles to the uh, lower level of care that I'm talking to you from right now. But when I first got to Omaha, I was put on a stretcher, put in an ambulance, and there was a, a motorcade leading me through the streets of Omaha that was bigger than a presidential motorcade. I got to the hospital, put through an underground area like the opening scene of the old TV show Get Smart, and brought upstairs into a room that was about 30 by, by 15, 20 feet. And it had glass, double-pane glass windows looking out into the hallway. It had two TV cameras, a uh, sealed door, another double-pane window that looked out onto the outside into a courtyard in the next building. And then uh, two, t two video monitors plus a regular TV and then men, two beds in there with many, many hookups for every conceivable condition possible. I was uh, put in there, and my doctor and two nurses came in wearing hazmat suits. The doctor stayed with me a couple hours doing an evaluation and test. The nurses stayed with me all day till they felt, after the tests came back, showing, number one, yes, I was positive with the virus because they do have a lab here on the premises, so the turnaround time is a matter of four or five hours, not two days. So I learned I was positive. By then, I already knew I was positive. I would have been shocked if I wasn't positive. They realized I was stable, checked all the vitals, did x-rays, had me hooked up to a number of monitors, and then decided to um, just only come in once every four hours. So the entire 10 days I was in there, I was receiving care every four hours, hooked up with two TVs. There was a central command down the hall that uh, could watch me at all times and also watch my pulse, my oxygen levels, my heart rate. They could monitor all that uh, from central command. So I was getting a lot of attention for, for quite a period of time right. for those 10 days but that by I was the same in there. By the same token, virtually everybody you're meeting has a hazmat suit on, right? Everybody you're coming in contact with has a hazmat suit. Did you start to feel dangerous? 
that, that, you know, more dangerous than you were physically feeling because you say your symptoms weren't all that bad, not all that much different than a than a cold or a flu. In fact, in some ways, even less. But everybody around you is wearing a hazmat suit. There are TV cameras on you. You're behind double pane glass. Did you start to feel like a threat to other people? No, but I knew I was contagious. And, and this team, you know, has been doing drills since 9-11. So they knew what they were doing and they weren't going to take any chances. They had three layers of gloves on, duct tape all around them. And, and they were being very, very cautious. This still was early on so information about the virus was just beginning to really come back to the states and and have the them get an understanding of this or begin to get an understanding there's no cure for the coronavirus right now so when i got there i wasn't given any antibiotics all they could do was make sure that all my vitals were okay they gave me i kid about this in my blog at hometownstation.com i kid about the fact that they just gave me a ton of Gatorade. I went through every rainbow color in the spectrum multiple amounts of times drinking a ton of Gatorade, which I later and now moved as I've learned more about the virus. I've learned that the virus doesn't do well in a hot environment. So I shifted off the Gatorade and moved to now hot ginger tea because ginger also pushes the body temperature up. And I'm walking around a lot making sure my body as unfriendly for the virus as possible. Right. Did you uh, have a moment where you thought you might die? Never, never. I knew what Jerry Jorgensen was, had gone through. It was like a minor cold. And without, without, as I said earlier, without a lot of the symptoms of the cold. So no, I never, never feared for my life. I knew, again, if I was going to be anywhere and sick, this was the place to be. And and so, no, I never, never but felt yet, that. But yet, if you read up on it, you certainly heard that there were people dying from it. Right. But most of the people dying that I was hearing about were those that were 20 years older than me and with with uh, usually some kind of condition with their lungs and it turned to pneumonia. So that's what they were. That, that was the one thing I was monitoring, making sure of, that this was not going to move into my chest or my lungs and and, uh, impact me that way. On Oops! The Podcast, join me, comedian Giulio Gallarotti, as I examine everyday life, the mistakes, the bad decisions, the goals, the jokes, the social engagements, and all things in between. I'm joined every week by producer and personal confidant, Ryan Lynch, various other comedians for witty, candid, and intoxicating conversation. Our listeners love Oops! for sophisticated banter, aka your mom could listen, and many feel like they're in the room with us chopping it up with old pals. You can find every episode of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Mm-hmm. Now, you wrote about uh, your wife to this point still has not tested positive. Is that right? Right. My wife's been negative. They released her this past Monday. She went back to work to a radio station in Santa Clarita and is trying to get caught up on everything. Now, you also wrote about some of the reception to her and your and even members of your family or people who have worked with her, even though she has not tested positive. Uh, at all, and gosh knows she's probably had more tests than than, than almost anybody. But coming off of that chip, uh, but the reaction back home apparently, uh, in some cases, has been very fearful, uh, maybe even uninformed or foolish, and and regrettable. Share with us some of that. Yeah, when we around the third day of our quarantine on the Diamond Princess, we decided that we would go public with this after weighing all the pros and cons and thought sharing information was going to be of value. So we, we, I started, I posted on the blog for the first time, and that got a tremendous response, and then we started doing interviews and really putting ourselves out there. When we did that, we started getting death threats and people saying that we need to stay in Japan and not come back to the States. There was a lot of, well, 99% of the feedback we were getting was positive and warm and loving. There was that 1% that was just vile. So we had to call authorities into the mix. Mark Jorgensen, who eventually got transferred to a hospital in Salt Lake City just uh, two days ago, they had to call authorities in over there because threats he was getting. When my wife did return... what What type of threats? Death threats. Death threats. They wanted us to die. And very... We had one with just very, very vocal 
and very um, descriptive death threats that went and, into great detail about how my wife would watch me die. And this was because you had contracted a virus? They, they wanted a violent was, death for you? I think it was because they didn't want us to come back to the States and possibly infect other people and in their ignorance didn't realize that there's no way the CDC was going to let us infect other people. We're much safer here than anywhere else. The, uh, the other really sad thing, same thing, our, our Santa Clarita Valley, we have 300,000 people there. We've owned the radio station since 1990, so we're very well known out, out in our valley. And, and uh, again, 99% of the folks have just been loving and warm and open and have been so generous and so, so wonderful with us. But there are some that are living in fear. And so the other day my wife wanted to get her nails done, and the owner of the nail salon said, no, you can't come in here. The, uh, our kid who was watching our house the whole time and taking care of our two dogs and sleeping in our house overnight on Tuesday, my wife came on Monday night, on Tuesday, he stopped by the house to leave keys and and uh, and then went off to his job, his regular job, walked in. The owner knew that he had gone to see my wife, even though my wife was negative, and fired him on the spot. So wow. as I said, there's, you know, 90, there's, we have, we have thousands and thousands of angels living in our Santa Clarita Valley and, and one bozo. Well, that bozo or the other bozos who have left you these messages, what, what would you want to say to them if they were all collected in front of you? That we're not like the scene in Monty Python's Holy Grail of, you know, the monk coming down swinging incense and, and chanting and saying, you know, bring us your dead is in the movie. I would change that to, you know, bring us your plague or, what, or make way for the plague. We don't have the plague. We're not lepers. My wife never had it. She never even had the illness. So I realized in, in talking with her, she goes into work now and comes home. She's not going to go in any public places. We made a commitment to each other that when I get home, because I do have the virus, that I'm going to stay at home, not even going to work for 14 additional days. My decision, not, not we're not being told to do that, even though I know I'll have a letter from the CDC saying I can't can't spread the, the, the virus, I'm going to stay in at, the home, at my home for 14 additional days and let everyone chill and kind of adjust to the fact that now I'm, I'm home. But it's almost like the old, I was running about this in my blog today, it's, it's like the old Salem witch trials from the, the end of the 17th century. And, and uh, I should be walking around now with a scarlet letter, a big C tattooed to my forehead, so everyone knows that I uh, I survived the coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in the Salem witch trials, uh, the, one of the tests that they had was they would put you know try to drown the woman, and they would say, well, if you don't drown, you're a witch, and if you do drown, then you weren't a witch. Of course, you're dead, but, you, you know, then you right. weren't a witch, and that's the only way to prove it. And it sounds a little bit like you're kind of in that situation, too, when you go home. Uh, you're, that, you're only going to go home if you're 100% cleared, and yet nobody's going to want to believe that you're cleared uh, and treat you as if you still have it. And the only way you, you can prove that you're cleared is, is to be out amongst them and nobody gets sick, but nobody wants to have that actually happen. So you're kind of caught in a little conundrum there as well. Right, it's a catch-22. There's also uh, two trials going on here in Omaha, that, and I volunteered for one of them. There's one trial is being given to a patient who is now receiving medication, experimental drug, to see if, they, if it can stop the virus. That uh, test that I wanted to participate in wasn't available to me because I was actually too healthy to qualify for that test. So I signed up for a different test. The way they test us normally for the virus is they take a, a swab and they stick it for five seconds deep up each nostril and deep down the throat. Those swabs are then taken and tested in the lab 
to see if I, if I have the virus. So there's actually three tests being done each time they come in and test me. So for me to leave, I have to have those three tests, Have to all three have to come out negative three days in a row. So that's a total of nine tests. With this additional study that I'm doing, the clinical study, none of the uh, procedures they're doing will benefit me. It will give them more information. So I'm doing this to help them maybe speed up the curve or provide a valuable clue. So they are doing numerous blood tests on me. They uh, have, have done swabs on everything I've touched from the iPhone I'm talking to you on to my computer to my toilet seat. They had, when I was in quarantine, they put a device in that captured the air to see how the virus might travel uh, through the air. They um, now do tests on me in addition to my nose and my throat, which is not too much fun. They've added three bonus tests. One is a uh, five seconds under each eyelid, which is not, not a joy. And then the added bonus is I get one stuck up my rear end. So I'm taking one for the team here. Yeah, in more ways than one. Uh, you, you have been uh, so isolated uh, for all this time in, in, in very, very unusual quarters. What has that done to your longing for an appreciation of your regular life, the outside, the moving about? Uh, you know, how has it changed your perspective on, on even just an average everyday day? Yeah, I think it will give me, and I already have this, but once I get out, I'll fully appreciate it. I'll have a new appreciation from just going out and being able to breathe fresh air, to be in touch with nature. Even if I stay at my house, which I plan to do for 14 days, I can sit outside in our backyard and enjoy that. I can enjoy our two dogs. I can interact with people who want to come to the house and, and actually see me, and I know there are going to be many of those. Uh, so, so I long for that. I miss that. I did an interview about uh, five, six days ago on one of the national networks, and the, the uh, reporter asked me exactly that. And I said, boy, here I am in Omaha. And by the way, they've been feeding us and just being incredible here, and the food's very good. But I said, you know, I'm, here I am in Omaha, and I can't get, I can't get to experience a, a great steak that, that the city is famous for. The uh, owner of Omaha Steaks was watching that interview. So that night they had cooked and brought steaks for all 15 of the patients who were here and also the entire medical team. So that was, that was very cool. Mm. Um, other than that, I, I, I think just being able to have the human contact is important. Every day at 3 o'clock, they they set up and that's coming up in a in a little while. But every day at three o'clock, they do a town hall meeting with all of us. We all get to get on the phones. The head of the the CDC officials are on with us, doctors, nurses, and they have a full time psychologist who's there. But more importantly, we get to share our feelings and experiences with the other patients who are quarantined in right. here. And that's been very, very helpful, getting more information. We can ask questions. So we feel, like, we feel like we're getting a lot of love here in Omaha, not just from all the ones here at Nebraska Medicine, but all the folks throughout, throughout Nebraska have just been awesome. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Well, you talked a, a bit about um, the good-natured stuff that has come out of this, the people who want to help, the people who are rallying around. Uh, what has this taught you, even in the small minority percentage, about human nature when one, one member of the human family uh, gets sick with something threatening? Uh, what has it taught you about the other side of human nature in terms of the fear uh, you know, Maury Schwartz, uh, the Maury of Tuesdays with Maury, when he got ALS, uh, he talked to me a lot about um, how people 
didn't want to come see him because somehow they thought it was contagious. And ALS is not in the slightest bit contagious, but people have that reaction sometimes to when other people fall ill or get something. They don't want to be around it. It makes them squeamish. Uh, Somehow they think it's going to rub off on them. Here you really are uh, carrying something that could rub off on them. And and I'm imagining you've seen that side of human nature too. What, What have you learned about that? Yeah, well, there's so much misinformation on social media, and it's very easy to get caught up in that rabbit hole and, and, and suddenly you know, start feeling, oh, my gosh, this is the way people are reacting. But we've been out in the line, you know, owning the radio station, we've been out in the limelight for many years, so we're a little desensitized to that and understand and have built in enough um, protection, emotional protection, not to get, get totally down when someone is, either a threatening or making a really bad negative comment. So we're used to that with what the challenges with the media right now, there's so much misinformation, not just on social media, but the regular media that has been uh, pushing so much misinformation. It's important to sift through and get a better understanding of what's really happening with the virus. Knowing that 98% of the people who get this, it's, it's, less impactful than a common cold, that um, very few kids are getting this. And and yes, we do need to stay vigilant. We do need to be proactive. We need, I recommend everybody purchase a good digital thermometer and have that at home, more so for a calming effect so that they're not freaking out if they cough or sneeze. They can simply take their temperature because 90, this common denominator seems to be at least in 99% of the cases is that very quick hitting high fever. Use that thermometer, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm drinking warm tea, ginger tea, keeping my body temperature up. If I were out in the public without the virus, I'd be washing my hands constantly. I would be really conscious of not touching my face or my eyes with my fingers. And then I'd probably stay away from very, very high-level uh, areas. I, I don't think I'd go to a Rolling Stones concert mm-hmm. over the next few weeks, but uh, but down the line, I'm going to go back. And, you know, I'm wearing my Philadelphia Eagles hat. I'm a fan of theirs, and when they get into the Super Bowl, if uh, refs are wearing hazmat suits, so be it. I'm, I'm going to fly to Tampa <laughs> and cheer on, cheer on the Eagles. Well, the people in Philadelphia will be happy to hear that. And having grown up in Philadelphia, I can tell you that uh, that's basically the level of fandom that exists pretty much on every block there. Is is there uh, anything that you took for granted before this experience in your life that you will no longer take for granted when it's over? Yeah, I think the, I joke because, number one, it's actually having an electric toothbrush that works. I have to do it the old-fashioned manual way because— our, our toothbrushes don't have uh, don't do batteries. It's one of the built-in chargers, and we didn't bring that. So some of those those simple things is a joke. But seriously, I, I believe it's just appreciating everything, realizing that that hey, I've been. It, this is now we're getting into the second week of March. Who would have believed when I left January 17th that I would not have physical human contact with people? And now we're we're swinging into mid March. How much do you ache for that? A hug, a kiss, uh, you know, the, the a handshake. How much do you miss that? I miss it. I I laugh because I think some of my humor is is rubbing off on my wife. She uh, did a press conference on Monday when she was released with the governor of Nebraska, the mayor, when a congressman, and all the national news was taking the feed. And before she, when she first met the governor, before they started the, the uh, conference, the governor went to shake her hand, and she said, "Well, let's just do elbows." So they did. They all did elbows, and now I just saw CNN had posted a, a clip of that on their Instagram, and it's now gone viral. The uh, elbow connection. We're still- in California. We're 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 huggers, and we're kiss. We do kisses with everyone we know as a greeting. And now I, I say we should move to the Japanese bowing for a while and just be smart about it. So I don't know how much I I will be open to hugs. And, and my wife, it's interesting. She got back 
and uh, most people, I'd say nine out of ten, are hugging her, and uh, it's that ten percent that are still fearful of this and, and don't want to have that that contact. How much do you miss your wife? Oh, I miss her a lot. Uh, this is the longest we've ever been separated. We'd still see each other virtually uh, multiple times a day, so I don't feel like I'm not connected with her. It's just our entire relationship is a virtual relationship at the moment. Right. Do you have new empathy for people who are shut-ins or for people who have been locked up or people who you know just have had limited contact with the outside world? Absolutely. And our oldest is a West Point grad, an Army Ranger, so he's done three deployments, leaving his wife and now two kids, our two grandkids. So I have a better understanding of the trials that they go through having someone who's active in the military. A couple years from now, when this is all behind us, if someone comes to you with a great deal for a cruise, will you take it? I plan it. I would not skip a cruise in a heartbeat. I plan to take another cruise later this year. Uh, we're doing another trip to the Galapagos Islands with my brother and his family this summer. That will be a, a little mini cruise around the Galapagos Islands as well as other traveling. I'm not going to skip that. And uh, I'm not going to take a cruise in the next few weeks. I would, I would wait until things calm down a little bit. But I will definitely be cruising. We love Princess. Their headquarters happens to be in our town of Santa Clarita. So we've been fans of Princess for a long time and have taken many cruises. We love to travel that way at least once or twice a year because we operate at a very, very fast pace uh, the rest of the time when we're home. And the cruise allows us to unwind a bit. Seems like you've learned a lot of lessons about fear uh, you've had to face it yourself. You, you you seem to have handled it quite well. You've also learned about other people's fear uh, and how it can lead them to you know certain types of reactions. Uh, put put it in perspective for us about the lessons that you have learned about that emotion, fear. I've learned, and, and this is always the greatest challenge, is to live for the moment. And where most fear comes up is. The, where they where you make up stories where the imagination takes over and worries about the future and the future is out of our control so all all I can do is live for the present not worry about my past and not dig that up because I also can't control that and take it one day at a time and that in itself has as I think kept all fear away from me the other important tool that I've learned is that humor and seeing, as I said earlier, keeping thing, making lemonade out of lemons is a big thing because particularly with this uh, coronavirus, stress is probably the worst thing that we could do to uh, combat the virus because stress, all studies have shown that stress breaks down the immune system. So worrying about and letting stress take over my situation is going to be counterproductive. Sounds like you have learned a lot about humor, too. You've exercised it a lot. I've read some of your, your blogs and, and your, your jokes, uh, and you don't seem to be of any shortage for laughs. Is, are you living the old axiom that humor is the best medicine? Absolutely. I think showing the humor side to something and seeing the humor of all this is, is uh, definitely a healer. And laughter and humor can definitely, that research has shown that, can definitely heal. Being optimistic and looking at the glass half full instead of half empty definitely is a healer. And as I said, you know, no, no sense worrying about the future that, that I can't control, so why add any stress to that? Last question for you. When you finally uh, get home and are, they say, you're, you're free to go, you're free to go, Carl Goldman, uh, what will be the first things that you'll hanker to do? I know you said you're going to stay inside, but even within inside, you know, when they open the door and you're, you're free, what are you going to do? I think uh, when I get home, obviously giving my wife a gigantic hug, but more importantly, letting the friends who feel comfortable, and again, that's the majority of them, come visit, bring a meal, because I'm not going to go to a restaurant for a while, so 
bring a nice meal over. We'll sit down and have a great meal, sit outside and, and just enjoy each other's company and enjoy being out in the open and being out in nature. That, to me, will be the greatest treat I could possibly have. Well, Carl, we hope it comes soon. And uh, you've been a wonderful guest to have on our program and given us a lot of perspective on uh, a lot of things that we take for granted in our life. As you said, who would have thought when you got on that boat uh, getting close to two months ago that I'd be talking to you from where you are and you'd be talking to me from where you are. Uh, So life is funny that way, and you've given us some great perspective. I thank you for that. Thank you, and I close today's blog with the hope that I get home before they have the final results of the Iowa caucus. <laughs> That's a fairly safe bet. Good luck with that. I and thank think you, so. Thank you for spending time with us, Carl. You got it. Take care. That's Carl Goldman, who is, uh, as he's speaking with us, in quarantine in Nebraska, and there's a lot to be gleaned from that conversation, uh, especially, I think, towards the end of it, where he said, boy, when I get my my one day, and we did a show on this not too long ago, you know, what's the perfect day? When I get my day of freedom from all this, what's he going to do? He wasn't looking to do anything expensive or fancy or, or wild. Uh, he just wanted his friends around and a nice meal and nature. And uh, it's uh, ironic. Uh, Maury said almost the exact same thing when I asked him, if he could have one day healthy again, how would he spend it? So there seems to be some universality in those messages, uh, along with a lot to learn about fear and what not to be afraid of, how to live in the moment, uh, how to appreciate the things that we do have, and how to be ready at any moment for uh, some of that to be taken away, and how to handle it. And it certainly sounds like he's handling it with great grace and humor and patience, because I'm not sure if I were locked away for that long a period of time already uh, if I could if I could have such uh, upbeat spirit. So hats off to him, and uh, Godspeed to him and his ability to get back home here quickly. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, a little bit of a deviation from uh, what we normally do, but I thought it was important given what's going on in the country and all the talk about the coronavirus. And I, I hope in, in listening to him, that perhaps some of the fear and some of the angst was taken away because here's a guy who has it, and he certainly doesn't sound worried about his long-term future or anything else. He's got it in a pretty good perspective. And This show is about perspective, so we appreciate you joining us. And you can hear this show every Tuesday. We'll be back again with another edition. Lisa Goich, my friend and our producer, uh, will be back with us on air as well for that. Until we see you next Tuesday. This is Mitch Album, host of Tuesday People, wishing you a great week. Thank you for listening to Tuesday People. To be part of our conversation, join the Tuesday People community at wetuesdaypeople.com. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends. We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because, after all, we're Tuesday People. <laughs>